WWJD, what would Jesus do? How many of you ever heard of that? Yeah, we've all heard that saying before, right? WWJD. And so, you know, the question is, where did that come from? Where did that start? We know the acronym. We know the saying. Well, it started in 1896 when a man named Charles Shelton wrote a book called In His Steps. And the book was about this Midwest church who the pastor in this church challenged his congregation to live out those words, to ask themselves, what would Jesus do with every transaction they made, every decision, every friendship, every relationship, every action, everything they did, every, every conversation they entered into, every letter they wrote, everything they did, he wanted them to ask, what would Jesus do? And the story goes on to show how this whole church and really the entire community begins to be transformed by this one decision to live out this lifestyle of what would Jesus do? Well, a hundred years later, in the 1990s, there was a youth leader in Michigan, and she decided that she wanted to teach her students in her youth group this lesson. She had read that book, and she said, man, what a powerful, incredible lesson for them to learn. And so she wanted something that would, that would help them remember and to help them grasp what would Jesus do. So she came up with this idea of a bracelet, WWJD. And so she gave it to her students, and, and that was the grassroots movement that sparked this worldwide phenomenon that has lasted for decades of what would Jesus do? I don't know if, you know, I don't know if you're anything like me, but uh, I mean, it's a wonderful concept, right? What would Jesus do? I mean, that, I think it's something we should ask ourselves of every decision we make, every relationship we enter into, every conversation we have. I mean, it's, it's incredibly important, but I don't know if you're like me, but man, living that out, that's where it gets hard. That's where it gets difficult to be able to say, yeah, what would Jesus do and actually go and do it? As a matter of fact, a dad, I read a story of a dad who discovered this, uh, how difficult this is to teach his kids. So he was trying to, to teach his boys this principle of what would Jesus do. And so one Saturday morning, dad was making pancakes for his kids. They were having a great Saturday, and they were just, they had this whole day planned out and started with pancakes. It was going to uh, continue on throughout the day. So he's making these pancakes for his sons. And, and, you know, if you're a dad, you know what happens, right? They start arguing about who gets the first pancake. Like, I want the first pancake. No, I want the first pancake. No, I want the first pancake. Well, the dad finally had enough, and he said, man, this is a perfect moment right here, right now, to teach my kids what would Jesus do, WWJD. So he asked his boys, say, listen, guys, if Jesus were here right now in this room, what would he do? But before they could answer, before they could even say a word, he says, here's what Jesus would do. Jesus would let his brother get the first pancake. And without batting an eye, the older brother said to his younger brother, hey, you, you get to be Jesus today. Well, today, we're going we're gonna to be in Philippians 2. 
And uh, we're continuing this series on the Church of Philippi. And the Church of Philippi was, uh, was uh, the book of Philippians was written to this church in the city of Philippi. And Paul wrote this letter. And uh, this letter is, is, is quite an amazing letter. And, and in fact, it's uh, 104 verses, four chapters. You can read it in about 15 minutes. That's all it takes to read the entire letter to the church in, in Philippi. And the passage we're going to be in today in Philippians 2 is one of the most glorious texts in all of the Scripture. It, is one of the most, it has some of the deepest theology in all of Scripture. In Philippians 2, and in fact, this, was a, this passage that we're going to read today was believed to be a hymn that was sung by the early church. They would not just read this letter, they would sing the phrases of these next few verses. And as we're going to see, these verses begin and they end with Jesus glorified in eternity. And then as you read through this text, you we're going to see Jesus descend into, human, into humanity. We're going to see his humble obedience culminated on his death on the cross. And then we're going to see his righteous exaltation to the place where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, books and volumes of books have been written on this text. And so as I was preparing uh, this series, I was originally going to teach this text in one message. And I was like, there is absolutely no way to be able to teach the truth and the theology and the depth of this passage in, in one week. So we're breaking this into two weeks. <clears throat> we're going to spend two weeks uh, on Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And the reason we're going to do that is because it's so incredibly deep. So this week, we're going to look at Jesus' humble obedience. Next week, we're going to look at his righteous exaltation. This week, we're going to look at his cross. Next week, we're going to look at his crown. This week, we're going to see Jesus, Jesus um, we're going to see him give up his glory. Next week, we're going to see him gain even more glory. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to re begin in verse 5. If you don't, they're going to be on the screens. And so if you're watching online, it'll be on the screen online for you as well. And he says this, Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form, <clears throat> excuse me, in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In verse 7, but he emptied himself. By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, therefore, God was high, has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every in heaven and on earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, before we can answer that question, what would Jesus do? We have to wrap our minds around what Jesus has already done. And in order to grasp and appreciate what Jesus has already done, we have to understand who Jesus is. And this passage in Philippians lays out who Jesus Christ is. 
And scriptures teach us that Jesus is God, that he humbled himself to become man. And in this passage, <clears throat> excuse me, he describes, Paul describes Jesus in three broad strokes to, to lay out the character of Jesus. And the first one is this. Well, I want you to see his divinity. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now I want you to notice that word form. He was in the form of God. Now this is hard for us to wrap our heads around oftentimes because I don't know about you, but when I think about form, I think about something with their outward appearance, right? They're in the form of a balloon or in the form or shape of something outwardly. But really what that word means that Paul uses in the Greek text is a word called morphe. And really that is about the essence, the inward nature, the character, the, the, um, the, the core of who you are. And so what Paul is saying is that at, at Jesus' very core, at his essence, his character, his nature, he is God. So we can often confuse that because we say, well, the outwardly, yeah, Jesus became God. But no, Jesus never became God. Jesus always was God. And so we have to understand what Paul is saying here, that his, Jesus' very essence, his essential attributes, his inner nature was God. Who he was and is at his core is he's God. So Paul is saying this. He's saying that Jesus Christ has always possessed and will always possess the nature, essence, and character of God. Being in the form of God, he says in verse 7. That's why Jesus could say, hey, listen, if you want to know what the Father looks like, if you want to know who the Father is, if you want to know who God is, all you have to do is just look at me. Why could he say that? Because he is the very essence, the very nature, the very character of God himself. See, Jesus never at any point became God. He has always been God and will always be God. So, the deity of Christ was pre-incarnation. It was pre-Bethlehem. It was pre-His birth. He has always existed as God. And I know many people claim and say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He never actually said that He was God. And quite honestly, that is absurd to even mention because it, it, because. What it tells me is that, one, you've never read the New Testament, or you blatantly deny what's written in the New Testament. You're going, Eric, well, that's a little harsh. Why do you say that? But here's why. Because in Luke chapter 5, I'm just going to give three instances, but there's numerous instances that this occurs. But in Luke chapter 5, there were four friends of Jesus's, or four friends that were carrying their friend to place before Jesus's feet. And they couldn't get in the room, so they opened up the the roof, they lower their friend down, they drop him right there at Jesus' feet. And what does Jesus say to him? Son, your sins are forgiven. You're like, okay, what does that mean? Well, the, in that moment, the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders got ticked off. They were not happy. Why? They said it was blasphemy to say, 
your sins are forgiven because only God can forgive sins. Well, duh. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus is right there in that moment saying, I am God. I can forgive sins. And if you don't believe me, he then looks at the man and says, hey, pick up your mat and walk. And the guy picks up his mat and walks home. Why does he do that? Because he's saying, I am God. Only God, for, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is God. Therefore, he says he can forgive sins. In John chapter 5. You can read it. He talks, up until this point in the Gospel of John, the religious leaders only tried to discredit Jesus. They only tried to to trip Jesus up. They only tried to confuse Jesus' teaching. But in John chapter 5, their attitude toward Jesus begins to change. And throughout the rest of the Gospel, they sought to kill Jesus. Why? Well, Scripture tells us. They sought to kill Jesus because they said that he continually claimed equality with the Father. He claimed to be equal to the Father. He claimed to be God. That's why they sought to kill him. Then in John chapter 10, the Jews were gathered around Jesus wanting to stone him. And I love what Jesus does. In John 10, he asks this question. He says, "Um, guys, which of the good works that I've done like, was it healing that guy or giving that guy sight or, or allowing that guy to walk? Which of these good works that I've done from my father do you want to stone me for? And the Jews, they said, listen, it's not because of your good works that we're setting out to stone you. That's not what we're doing. We want to stone you for blasphemy. We want to stone you because you, being a man, always make yourself out to be God. You see, throughout the New Testament, the religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying about himself. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They knew that he was claiming to be God. They knew that he was saying that he was, he was divine. And so Paul, right here in this text, is talking about Jesus' divinity. And he's saying that Jesus is the very nature of God, the very form of God, the very essence and character of God. But he doesn't stop there. Look at also, he says, he talks about his humility. Look at verse 6 and 7 again. He says this, Who, though he was in the form of God, listen to the second half of this verse, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, what we're going to see over these next few verses is this descent of Jesus from the glory of heaven, being 100% God, he is going to descend into humanity. He's going to come down into humanity in this text in order to redeem us. But what, what, what Paul is saying is that, listen, I want you to see the humility of Christ. You want to know what Jesus would do? Let's look at what Jesus has done by discovering who Jesus is. And who Jesus is is a humble servant. Now think about this. Jesus began and has always been God. There was no beginning. He's always been God. He's always existed as God. He's always, his essence, his nature, his character is God. And yet he chose to descend and become a humble servant. He chose to become man. Why would he do that? Why would he leave that great gig in heaven? 
I mean, he had a pretty good gig, didn't he? All creation worshipped him. All the angels bowed before him. He and the Father and His Spirit were in perfect unity, perfect oneness. He did not have to leave heaven. Everything was constantly giving Him praise, all creation. Why would He do that? What could He have been thinking in order to cause Him to do that? Well, the answer is He certainly wasn't thinking about Himself. What He was thinking about was others. He was thinking about you. He was thinking about me. See, Jesus did that because he had this attitude of selfless humility. It was a principle we talked about a couple of weeks ago that Paul introduced to us in verses 3 and 4. I just want to read those for you. Just, you can just listen to them. They won't be on your screen, but, it, but this is the verses just prior to, to verse 5. And he says, do nothing from, selfless, or from selfish ambition or conceit, but... In humility, count others more significant than yourself. Look, each of you, look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what was Jesus doing? He wasn't looking to his own interest. He was looking to ours. He knew we were in need of a Savior. He knew we were in need of redemption. So what does he do? He selflessly humbles himself to the point of death even death on the cross. But listen to verse 7 again. Verse 7 says, but he emptied himself. Now folks, this is the mystery of the incarnation. This is the mystery of God becoming man. It's the mystery that was prophesied by Isaiah, where Isaiah said that the, the Christ child will be born, and his name will be what? Does anybody remember? Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, Jesus is God with us. That's who he is. Now, I admit, I don't totally understand the incarnation. I can't fully wrap my head around the fact that God would become man and how God would even become man. I can't wrap my head around it, but I believe it. I trust it. I, 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 I place my faith in it. And that's what Paul is saying. Listen, this is the mystery of how God set out to redeem us. But he says that Jesus emptied himself. What does that actually mean? What does it mean that he emptied it? What did he empty himself of? Like, did Jesus cease to be God in order to become man? No, what he did is he emptied himself of the privileges of being God. He emptied himself of, of those privileges, of those prerogatives of being God. He never ceased to be God, but he refused to hold on to his divine rights. He refused to hold tightly to those. And it's important to note that Jesus never ceased being fully divine. That never stopped. There's some people that will teach that Jesus stopped being God when he came to earth. That is absolutely false doctrine. He never stopped being God. He was continually God. He never ceased being God. As A.W. Tozer said, he said, he veiled his deity, but he did not void his deity. He veiled it, but he never voided it. What does that mean? Well, first of all, he took on human form, which means he experienced the limits of a human being. 
he experienced the limits of our human body. In other words, Jesus could no longer be in more than one place at a time. He veiled that attribute of God, that omnipresence of God, in order to take on the form of a human body. He could only be in one place at one time. Not only that, he had to eat, sleep, drink. Those are limitations that our human body has, that Jesus took on. Not only that, he could feel pain, he could bleed, and ultimately, he could die. So he took on these limitations. He, he limited himself. That's what it means when it says that he, he emptied himself. Part of that is he didn't, he didn't empty out God and take on man. No, he emptied all of God into man, and that man's name is Jesus. That's what Paul is talking about here. But not only that, he veiled his glory. Jesus veiled his glory. In heaven, Jesus enjoyed the praise of all the angels, but he refused to hold on to that divine glory, that right of glory while he was on earth. In fact, there's only one time in Scripture, in, in, the, in the New Testament, in his life on earth, that he reveals his glory to three of his disciples. And it said the transfiguration, and the disciples, it blew their mind. They had no idea what to think or do or act, so they just kind of lost their mind, and they started trying to build these altars and all this kind of stuff. Why? Because for the first time, they had seen Jesus' unveiled glory. But listen to what Jesus prayed in John 17. At the, right as before he goes to the cross, right at the end of his, his, his ministry here on earth, he prays this, he says, Now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence, but get this, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Do you see that? When Jesus prays in John 17, he's saying, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, Jesus veiled his glory in order to become a man in order to redeem us. But not only that, he also emptied himself of independent authority. Meaning this, that while Jesus was on earth, he completely submitted to the Father's will. He completely submitted everything he did to the Father's will. In John 5, he said, I don't seek my own will, but I seek to do the will of the Father. If you remember his prayer in Gethsemane, right before his crucifixion, he's praying in the garden and he's asking God, God, if there's another way to redeem mankind, if there's another way for me to, to restore the relationship between God and man, if there's another way, God, please let this cup pass from me. But then what does he say? Not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus emptied himself by limiting his, his, his divinity through a human body. He emptied himself by veiling his glory, and he emptied himself by, by submitting himself completely and totally to the Father's will. That's how humble. That was his hum humility. But I also want you to see his humanity. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 and 8 again. He says this, But he emptied himself, and by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Notice that word form again. It occurs twice in that passage we just read. Again, he takes on the form, the very nature, the very essence, the very character of man. He takes on the very nature, the very essence, the very character of a servant. He took on the nature of man. You see, when God chose to reveal himself to us, what does he do? He does so through a human body. Why? So that Jesus could fully experience our human experience. So that he could identify with us. So that we would have a high priest that would know exactly what we've gone through. So he would face every temptation we've ever faced. He would face every trial that we've ever faced. He would know what our human experience is like. That is why he took on the the human form. And so Jesus was truly man. But he was never merely man. In other words, Jesus was fully God and fully man. That's the truth that Paul is trying to teach us here. But here's the reality. People flock to see him. They fought to be with him. They wanted to hear him. They, they wanted to be near him. Why? Because he got his hands dirty. Because though he was fully God and fully man, he was a friend of sinners. He didn't place himself as a statue in a cathedral or a priest in an elevated pulpit. What did he do? He got down on our level. He experienced what we experienced. He lived what we live. He he dealt with the th- same things we deal with. Consider, consider with me the steps that Jesus took. These downward steps, if you will, from his glory in heaven that he took in order to share our humanity and in order to redeem us from our sins, to die on the cross. Think, consider what he, what he had to go through in order to fulfill the Father's plan. He had to step down from heaven to earth, from deity into humanity from being human to being an obedient servant from being a servant to taking on death and not just death but the humiliating death of the cross all these downward steps jesus took why for you and for me He did it for the sake of redeeming us. He did it for the sake of restoring our relationship with God. He did it for the purpose of reconciling us back to the Father. So when we ask this question, what would Jesus do? We have to begin with what has Jesus already done? What has he done? He's emptied himself of his divine glory. He took on the form of a servant becoming fully human. He humbled himself in obedience unto death by submitting to the Father's will. And obediently he he took on the humiliating death of crucifixion in order to make atonement for our sin. And then look at verse 5 one more time. Paul says this, that we should do the same. That you and I, as Christ's followers, should do the same. What does he say? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Why our minds? Why does Paul say that we need to take on this mind of Christ, this mind of selfless humility, this mind of, of 
not looking out for our own selves, but looking out for others. Why does he talk about our minds? Well, Paul talks about our minds because our minds drive our behavior. What we think ultimately drives what we do. Our attitudes will determine our actions. Our outlook will ultimately drive the outcome. Listen, whatever you're thinking right now and however you're thinking will ultimately turn into the way you behave and the way you act and the way you, the way you, 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 what you do. What we think with our heads leads to what we do with our feet and with our hands. And so Paul says you need to take on the mind of Christ, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's that whole idea that you and I in Christ are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. He says, you've already been given the mind of Christ. Now live in it. Now walk in it. Now be obedient to it. In other words, we have to have the same attitude. We have to have the same attitude towards people that Jesus did. We have to have the same attitude toward our circumstances that Jesus did. What would Jesus do? See, I don't know about you, man, but that is becoming more and more difficult during the season that we're living in. Because our culture is trying to polarize us. Our culture is trying to divide us. Culture is trying to create any wedge, any way to separate even those within the body of Christ. What, G, what Paul says is, listen, you and I as Christ followers, we have to have the mind of Christ. We have to have the same outlook and attitude that Jesus had. We have to view people the same way that Jesus did. And so here's the reality. If our outlook is selfish, guess what? Our actions, our outcome is going to be divisive. But if our attitude and our outlook is self-sacrificing, if it's humble, there will be edification and there will be unity. Paul says, let this mind be in you in other words if you and i want to follow jesus if you and i want to be more and more like jesus if we want to 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 be like him we have to first start humbly serving like him we have to walk in humble submission to him we have to walk in selfless humility He's saying the same thing that jesus said jesus said if any man wants to come after me if you want to follow me, you have to die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow. See, that's hard. Just walking out these doors and claiming that we're Christians, that's not that difficult. Because we can define, we can say, well, I'm a Christian, yeah. But so what Jesus calls us to is following. He says, I want you to follow me. What does following him looks like? It looks like humble submission. It looks like selfless humility that's what following him looks like see oftentimes we want to believe but we don't want obedience like jesus i want to believe what you taught and i want to believe what you said but that obedience part i'm not that interested in that part anybody else i know that's me but what jesus would say listen without obedience there's really not truly belief if you're not willing to obey, then you're truly not believing. 
Not only that, I, I often want passive surrender and passive submission. And what Jesus says, no, I want you to surrender all. I want you to lay it all down. I want you to give it all to me. Real submission, real surrender to the will of God includes the willingness to be obedient in all things at all times. Let me sum up this passage in this way. The incarnation, this whole passage about God becoming man, the incarnation should be our motivation for loving and serving others. Why? Because Jesus gives us, gives us the example of a man who walked in selfless humility, who did not count himself more significant than others. And let's be honest, he is far more significant than all others. We're going to see next week that at his very name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So if anyone, if anyone could consider himself more significant than others, it was Jesus. And yet, he chose not to. And that should be the example that you and I live by. Because the truth of the matter is, we can't follow him in his, in his divinity. None of us will be God. But what we can do, and what he calls us to do, is to follow him in his humanity, which means following him in his humility. Listen to what Jesus said. Let me give you a new command in John 13. Love one another. And then he goes on to say, in the same way that I loved you. You want to know how we're to love one another? In the same exact way that Jesus loved us. That's how we're to love one another. How did Jesus love us? He loved us so much that he left the glory of heaven. He willfully submitted himself to becoming a servant. In humility, he took on death on the cross and he died for our sins. That is how much Jesus loves us. And that is how much we are to love others. And then Jesus says, and when you do, people will recognize that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. So what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Well, we have to begin with what he's done. And what he has done is he's willfully submitted his life. He's walked in active obedience. And he completely surrendered to the Father's will. Jesus is our model of selfless humility. And that, church, is how we are to walk and how we are to live. Let's pray. Father, I admit that those words are hard because for me, the last thing I want to do is walk in selfless humility. I mean, my, na my very nature wants me to walk in pride and wants me to walk in arrogance and wants me to walk in my way and wants me to consider myself more significant than others. But yet, Jesus, you walked and gave us this incredibly beautiful example of what it means to walk in selfless humility to, to the one person, the only person that has ever walked this earth that, that did deserve to be more significant than anyone else. Yet you chose to humbly submit yourself to walk in selfless humility 
to leave the glory of heaven, take on the form and the nature and the essence of your creation and to do so to the point of death on the cross. For those of you who are watching online or in this room and you've never submitted your life to Jesus Christ and never placed your faith in Him, I just encourage you to do so now. That is the gospel, that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so if you're watching online or you're here in this room and you've never submitted your life to Jesus, you've never placed your trust and faith in this humble servant who gave his life in order to redeem, in order to forgive, in order to take away your sin, I just encourage you to do so now. Scripture says you do so simply by faith. That if you will believe and if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. And I just encourage you to do that now. And for those of us who are Christ followers, Lord, I pray that you would give us strength to walk in selfless humility. I know that there's this drawing, this urging within our culture today to walk in arrogance and to walk in pride. To divide people. And, and, but Lord, we know that by walking in self-sacrifice, by dying to ourselves daily, Lord, that's what's going to bring unity. That's what's going to glorify you. That's what's going to honor you. Help us to love as Jesus has loved us. We pray this in his name. Amen.